Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of SolarPunk by Village Global. In the last episode, we were really excited to have Jacob Hoberg to talk about the Chinese Communist Party and its influence around the globe. To follow up on that conversation, we really wanted to do a deep dive on the Chinese economy and all the crises and opportunities that it is currently facing. To have that conversation, we could not be more excited to welcome Noah Smith with us today on the show. Noah is an economist blogger in his substack called No Opinion, and he's a former Bloomberg opinion columnist, and he was previously an assistant professor of finance at Stony Brook University. Noah has gone really deep on the Chinese economy, and we're really excited to have him here today to have that conversation. And now, on to the show. Kick us off, just because I know you've been writing and thinking a lot about China recently. What led to your interest in China? I have never lived in China. I've been there only twice. It's just big and important to the global economy. You know, we had, uh, we've had trade wars. We've had, you know, a, a large uh, amount of global growth driven by China. We've had the threat of conflict, uh, all these things. And, um, and, you know, so China's important. You can't really talk about the economy without talking about China. And on that thread, can you just give us a quick overview before we dive, dive deeper into where do you see the country's economy today? What are its latest uh, numbers like GDP, productivity growth, et cetera, et cetera? Right. So what's interesting is that right now there's this strong narrative of China's government can do no wrong. You know, uh, China itself can do no wrong. It's an unstoppable juggernaut, blah, blah, blah. This view is about eight years out of date. You know, for the last eight years, it's been becoming more and more apparent that that was not actually true. But I, in my experience, there's a big lag. You know, people were still saying, you know, Japan, country of the future in 1998. But then by like 2002, everyone was saying Japan, country where people still use fax machines. Um, you know, neither of these narratives is exactly true. You know, uh, Japan is futuristic stuff and, and, uh, and, you know, stuff that needs to catch up. But, but I think these narratives take time to shift. Because the, the Japanese bubble burst in 1990, you know, and it wasn't until eight-ish years later that people really started to, to understand what had happened there. With China, I think just at the point where everyone is starting to agree with the narrative of China as an unstoppable growth juggernaut piloted by a government that could do no wrong, just when everyone's starting to agree with that idea, it's starting to really become not right, there's just a whole lot of stuff has gone wrong for China in a short space of time. And I think that this started with some of the failures of the Xi Jinping administration, you know, of, of Xi Jinping himself. The Belt and Road Project started to, um, you know, kind of screw up. Lots of countries got mad at how these projects were going. They didn't, they weren't earning a return. There were unforeseen problems countries were getting trapped by debt and a lot of people just got mad at this 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 giant effort that was supposed to knit the world economy around china be a marshall plan for the whole world and you know suddenly started looking you know like something that was going to just annoy a lot of people and so uh the the 
you know, there was also Xi Jinping's industrial crackdown. So this began in actually 2020 and nobody really noticed, maybe even in 2019. So it wasn't really because of the pandemic. It was completely just something that she wanted to do, where he started taking IT companies, you know, Alibaba or, uh, or Didi, you know, all these ones at Tencent and just sort of basically using a raft of new regulations to restrict their activities. And this just came right out of the blue. And um, I kind of knew it was coming because China analysts who are friends of mine told me that the central government of China is has stopped considering consumer internet to be real tech. They've said Google, Amazon, that's not actually tech. That is some useless entertainment media crap. And we are going to reduce that. We're going to curb that so that the smart engineers decide that it's better, a better idea to go into um, you know, semiconductor manufacturing and other things, you know, real tech. So, you know, if if this sounds extremely boomer to you, it's you're right. It's because the country is ruled by one very powerful boomer. Um, you know, and so uh, here we have checks on the boomers and the boomers have to listen to other people. But there are the boomer, you know, king boomer just rules. And so so that was the second thing. And then, of course, China started hitting uh, some shocks. Um, real estate finally crashed in China after years and years of people saying that this was going to happen. China was building too much real estate in places that didn't need it. It was financing this real estate recklessly. It was local governments were too dependent on real estate. Blah, 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 blah. There was all this stuff. Productivity was getting low. People were saying this for many years and predicting a crash. And uh, and the people I know who were sort of, you know, watching this very closely said, when China reaches or slightly exceeds the average floor space per person of rich world countries, like, you know, not the United States who has giant houses or Australia, but like Germany, say, when China gets a little bit more housing square footage per person in Germany, let's say there'll be a crash. That was pretty close to right. You know, that was pretty on target. Uh, that was actually Arthur Krober of Dragonomics uh, who, who told me that, and he was he was uh, he was very close to right. So there was that, and then then there was COVID and lockdowns. Uh, you know, you know how that's going. And then of course there's the uh, Russia Ukraine war, and people are saying, okay, well, so financial sanctions are sort of crushing Russia's economy. What if this happened to China? And suddenly, geopolitics has returned, and people are realizing that it's not you know the, the sort of globalized seamless globalized world that people thought we were moving toward in the 2000s is not happening and political geopolitical blocks are forming and that's a scary thing but you know it's it's not necessarily a good thing right it's not something we want to see a new cold war but it may be just inevitable at this point so i think that's that's sort of an overview of all the things that are kind of going wrong uh in china right now all at the same time at a time when some very long-term headwinds are pushing against them uh, you have demographic headwinds you have the ending of catch-up growth. You have resource limitations, and you have flagging, uh, you know, or stagnant demand for Chinese exports, and all those factors, long-term factors, are operating in the background. So you have a bunch of disasters, both external and self-inflicted, combining with the long-term trends. And so China's growth is essentially slowed to almost nothing right now, and the trend growth is probably slowed to a little bit higher than the United States. So as you talk about headwinds, right, tell us a little bit about how the U.S. is kind of creating or imposing some of that, whether it be U.S. tariffs or kind of this idea of, uh, you know, less offshoring or diversifying outside of China. How is that impacting uh, that economy? Right. What's interesting is that before the pandemic, the tariffs did surprisingly little. 
to reduce Chinese exports to the United States. Uh, very little happened. The uh, you know the Chinese currency depreciated to sort of cancel out part of the tariffs, which is exactly what economics 101 predicts will happen. And you know production chains were pretty stable. Ultimately, the tariffs were less important than the logic of you know of production chains. Thing if you need you know a billion iPads manufactured or however many you need to manufacture. There's only one place you can really do a lot of that because there's only one place with the requisite scale and capacity to manufacture the scale that you need. And if there's a tariff, you just have to pay a higher price for it. And that means that Americans get American consumers get higher prices. And it, so now it did the tariffs did hurt China. You can see this from data uh, from from space. Actually, you can see that lighting in places that you know in places that supplied American companies more went down by more than lighting elsewhere. Night lights indicating people are working overnight at factories. So that's, you know, kind of a neat result. The tariffs did hurt China. The tariffs hurt America. They hurt China more than America. So I would say that the tariffs were sort of an offensive weapon against China to just smack China around because Trump was mad at China. And it worked. Um, But it wasn't a huge effect. It wasn't, it didn't really deeply change the story. And to be honest, China had, you know, China had al- already sort of export demand uh, from rich countries had already kind of saturated, and China's leaders already sort of knew that, and the tariffs just drove that home a little bit. Uh, country, you know, companies were already looking to do a China plus one strategy, move a few factories to Vietnam or Malaysia, or India, and that was already happening. And so, I don't think that the tariffs did a hell. They did a little bit. They didn't do a hell of a lot. It was more about, I would say that. Three things really changed in China. The industrial crackdowns showed that China was a lot more hostile to private industry. There had been all these people arguing back and forth, you know, is the Xi Jin is Xi Jinping, is the CCP sort of very hostile to private industry? Or, you know, are they are they real communists here? Or are they just, you know, more like a continuation of the Hu Jintao administration, which was pretty much just, you know, mixed economy centrist bullshit, blah, blah. Um uh, you know, and I, I think who is very underrated, but uh, I think the good case for China would have been that she was just a continuation of who that would have been actually good, but he wasn't. And so I think that now his crackdowns mean that the like she is a communist dictator. People are sort of winning the argument there. And so that's influenced uh, COVID lockdowns are sort of this. I think that's actually the least important factor, although people cite it the most. Uh, you know, yes, COVID lockdowns are going to keep on going and intermittently blah, blah, blah disrupt production. But ultimately, I think that that's, you know, that's going to be less of a factor in three years than people think. But then I think that the Russia war is a bigger factor than people think. And what you see is that right after the the big sanctions, the, the big financial sanctions were imposed on Russia, you see capital crash out of China, massive capital outflow that did not happen from the lockdowns, that did not happen from the real estate crash, none of these other things. Suddenly, people just started getting their money out of China because... China's main geopolitical ally just started a war and lost. <laughs> I mean, they haven't lost quite yet, but it looks it's not looking good for the Russians. And like um and, and then and then financial sanctions just utterly crushed that economy in like a day. It's like suddenly the the West is back, you know, just rears up and says, actually, all that stuff where we financialized our economy and we just do banking and take in people's money and manage it for them. There was a reason for that, and now we know the reason for that. That was what financialization was preparing for this whole time. So what's your take on 
continuing or increasing or decreasing U.S. tariff set? Do you think that we should, shouldn't be doing it? What's the impact we should be aiming for here in terms of the U.S.? Well, with tariffs, uh, you know, it's a complicated situation because it, like, I think it may, it does make sense to strongly encourage production chains to shift out of China, especially critical production chains. So if there's stuff we're producing in China that we would suddenly find cut off in the, in the event of a war that would really hurt our economy because it just got cut off, we need to get that out of China because there could be a war and then we'd be cut off. So suppose you know, of course we can make all our food here, but suppose there was like one, one sort of chip that we, that could only be made in China that was absolutely essential to the working of our economy. And then China could just cut it off in war. And suddenly we can't make any military stuff at all, or even keep our economy going. And, you know, that would suck. Now that's not real. That's not, that's not really happening. The closest thing to that is, you know, I don't know, maybe rare earth metals, which we can actually mine ourselves with enough headway, uh, which we're, which we're doing now. But then uh, we don't want that sort of vulnerability. So we need to get that stuff out of China and we need to use, and tariffs are one tool we can use to get out of China. But just putting random tariffs on like, I don't know, baby formula, I guess that's Europe, but just putting random like low value sort of like consumer goods, putting tariffs on those is not super important or effective. You know, starving China of export revenue from exporting toys to us or whatever, like, that's not important. So I say put tariffs, keep tariffs on anything that we, and even raise tariffs on, on anything that we need to reshore, that we need to not even reshore to America, but reshore, you know, reshore to Indonesia, a friendly country, you know, like um, Mexico, you know, uh, I'm not talking about like bring back the manufacturing jobs, like Trump stuff here. I'm talking about strategic importance. I'm talking about things we need in the event of a conflict, because Russia just proved that sort of the age of conflict is back. <laughs> it's uh, um, in in China when Russia invaded, there was a huge debate. There was a debate about, well, okay, should we do this too, or should we not do this? And I think that that debate hasn't ended. That there have been some people who say, okay, now it's go time. We've been we've been thinking for decades about displacing the U.S. led world order, and now it's now it's time to go, guys. Uh, and then I think that's those people haven't been debunked. Right. You know, that is Xi Jinping right there. He's like, OK, it's time. And and by the way, you can read a book by this called The Long Game by uh, Rush Doshi. Fantastic book. Fantastic. Um, fantastic book written in a it, extremely like dry academic uh, voice and um, and extremely repetitive because his goal is to simply browbeat IR scholars with the force of his thesis. And he succeeds. He succeeds. Um, it is not necessarily like a fun, engaging read, but it is an important read. And the the phrase great changes unseen in a century, he shows by just pouring through millions and millions of official communiques and documents and speeches and blah, blah, blah. You know, he shows this is the key phrase, meaning it's go time. It's time for China to displace the U.S.-led world war. And that faction is still there. And then there's the faction of guys. Russia just got into a major debacle trying to conquer a place. Maybe the same would happen if we went for Taiwan. Let's hold up. Let's wait. And so the, the sort of voice of caution people and the sort of like, but I thought it was go time people are, are having a debate in China and, and uh, you know, from all accounts, a pretty intense debate. 
Well, uh, I, I love that you you brought up uh, Rush Doshi's uh, book, the the Long Game. It's it's by far the best book I've read all year, and I, I've recommended it to countless people so far. But it, you know, you mentioned a lot of the changes in the supply chain and how we should think, uh, you know, about uh, reshoring a lot of these things. Is your perspective that deglobalization and what we call the Great Decoupling is going to be the theme of the 2020s? I mean, I think that is going to be animal. I think there's going to be other themes too. New technologies are going to be really important. And I think that decoupling is not going to be as extensive as some people think. I think that we weren't as invested in China as a lot of people think. We were somewhat invested in China, but a lot of the stuff, a lot of the Chinese import competition did not come from American factories moving to China and employing Chinese people, you know, or American companies sourcing stuff from China. A lot of that was French companies moving to China and then selling stuff cheaply to the United States or Japanese companies, Korean companies. And remember that some of those other rich economies are weaker than us. They've got more rapidly aging populations. They've got uh, more stagnant investment. They've got more. Some of them have more rules like, you know, Europe has some some growth stifling rules where essentially if you're a French company and the only way you're going to achieve a lot of growth is either comply with a million rules to do stuff very difficultly in France or move to China. There's a lot of that stuff. And so, so it's not just the United States. And remember, Europe is primarily focused on the threat of Russia, uh, which is in Europe and um, somewhat. And then, uh, but then they're not, you know, they've become more negative toward China and they're, they're more negative toward China now, even more because China is Russia's ally, but there's not sort of this, intrinsic competition the united states has always been more of a pacific power than than europe and so so i think that yeah deglobalization is happening but i wouldn't say it would be just this massive economic divorce that some people are predicting it will be a trend an important trend but one of several right and i want to go back to something that you mentioned at the beginning which is uh, china's demographic crisis um to what extent is the demographic crisis magnifying all of the other issues that you talked about and then my second question to you, to you is you know china got rid of its one child policy years ago so but the demographic issues just keeps getting worse so why haven't things changed and why do you think that did they that they did not woke up to this issue a long time ago um all right so first of all the the demographics are demographics exacerbating some of these issues. I think some yes, some no. So like COVID, you know, I mean, I guess having more old people makes you more vulnerable to COVID, but that, you know, it's a marginal change. It's not, a, you know, it doesn't really affect it. Real estate, absolutely. The demo, you know, not having enough young people to keep buying the pyramid scheme of these like overpriced crappy apartments, absolutely, you know, screws over real estate. Um, so I think that the answer in terms of raising Chinese costs and encouraging deshoring, encouraging decoupling, I think demographics does do something. You just have a lot fewer younger Chinese workers. Uh, China ran out of rural workers to sort of import into cities a long, like a while ago, like not a long time ago, anywhere from sort of, you know, two th- between 2010 and like 2020, sometime in there, they ran out of extra workers. So, you know, that's raising costs. It's going to encourage, uh, deshoring whatever but i think that here's one thing that i haven't seen anyone else say so I, I, those were boring answers so i'll give you one interesting answer in an econ 101 class they're trying to explain the concept of a derivative to people who may or may not have taken calculus and and so one of the things they explain is they, they have the example of when to cut a forest 
you have this forest that's growing and you have an interest rate and you have you know a certain price for your lumber and when do you cut that when do you let the forest grow and when do you cut it down and the answer is when the rate of growth of the forest slows to below the interest rate then you cut the forest and this is this famous example that's in you know it's beginning of some text but yeah so the question is you know for a long time under Deng Xiaoping and his two handpicked heirs, uh, Zhang and Hu, China, um, you know, they really, uh, they, they adhered to this, this principle of hide your capabilities and bide your time, which, of course, Rush Doshi talks about a lot. The reason for that was that it was more advantageous to them for their long-term goals, even if their long-term goal is geopolitical dominance, it was more advantageous to keep their economy growing fast through engagement with the rest of the world, right? It didn't make sense to cut the forest yet. But when economic growth slows, you know, then it becomes more advantageous to cut the forest of international relations. Uh, the forest is international relations and globalization. And then also, but the thing is that if rapid aging means that China's geopolitical power will stop, its potential power will stop growing as fast or will even shrink. I mean, you've seen this, an actual crash in the number of Chinese young people. Like the number of young workers in China has fallen by a lot in the last 10 years. And that reduces China's military potential and geopolitical heft. And so, you know, that puts some urgency in, in Chinese leaders thinking. And if you look at World War I, you see that the, the Germans were motivated not just by the need to defend their ally, Austria-Hungary. They were also motivated by fear of Russia because they thought Russia's rapidly industrializing. When Russia industrializes, we'll be screwed. We'll be a second-rate power. Russia will be able to crush us. So we've got to beat up Russia and, you know, do whatever we're going to do before Russia gets really strong. And that was a big part of their thinking. Aging could be China's Russia, this implacable foe that will inevitably just get stronger and stronger if we don't attack today. So China might think, if we don't claim our place in the sun, take over Taiwan, dominate East Asia, and replace the U.S.-led world order now aging is going to make it 10 times harder 20 years from now so we better do it now and so you know that's a strong argument i think for the sort of it's go time faction in in china and i think that that's why had russia not made this giant blunder we might be worrying about a chinese conquest of taiwan in this year or the next year and now basically no one's worried about that Thanks, one of the other things that we'd love for you to explain to our listeners is this made in China. Like will you what start by giving us an overview of what is made in China. And then we'd love to get a sense of your state of how is that going given all of the challenges that the Chinese economy is facing. Uh, all right. Made in China 2025 is this idea that China's growth was slowing. So what China's growth started slowing about a year before Xi Jinping came into office. Before that it had been somewhere around the range of 10% for about 30 years, which is an amazing run of growth uh, from a very low base. And so, but, so then China's growth started slowing a, a bit earlier than countries like Korea or Japan. It started slowing quite a bit earlier in its, in its journey. And you saw this happen. I, you know, we all want to blame Xi for fun. But in this case, it, it started, the slowdown started just before he came to, to power. And he sort of got caught by this. And um, it, there was a slowdown from about 10% to about 6.5%, or maybe 95 to 6.5%. And so that slowdown happened. And then um, you know, Xi Jinping thought, OK, so how are we going to boost growth back up? Traditionally, when you undergo a slowdown, there's several things you can do. 
Um, and it depends on sort of which stage of development you're at. At some point, there's nothing you can do other than to sort of raise service industry productivity, which, you know, requires a uh, neoliberalism, probably. Uh, so then that's, that's scary, you know? Um, and so, so countries with, with, you know, more management, more planning in their economy fear to hit that point, because that means you're going to have to start allowing more labor flexibility and, you know, more competition, private equity and crap like that. So, which we of course did in the, in the Reagan era. And so then, but China may not be there yet. So what's interesting is that South Korea grew like gangbusters in the, um, the late 60s and 70s under Park Chung-hee, who just encouraged exports, uh, you know, cars and electronics and things like that, the things that eventually made Korea rich. And then, um, you know, then when, when that started to slow down just a little, Park Chung-hee is like, okay, time for next big initiative. The next big initiative is called the Heavy and Chemical Industries Drive. And uh, we're going to go into this industry and this industry and blah, blah, because they're heavy industries and you know, they're also useful for war uh, in case we need to fight North Korea, blah, blah, blah. This shouldn't have worked. That's that's the kind of industrial policy that almost never worked. The kind of industrial policy that usually does work is promoting exports, like just pushing your companies to get out there and figure out what can you sell to these foreigners? Just figure out something to sell to these foreigners, guys. That's the kind of industrial policy that really works um, for a, a growing developing country and maybe for us too, actually. Uh, we'll see about that. But um but the kind of industrial policy that's not supposed to work is I want this industry, that industry, and that industry, right? And give me those things. Make those world-class. That's not supposed to work, but it actually kind of did in Korea. It didn't work as well as the previous better classic form of industrial policy, but it did have an effect, uh, you know, a, a, a positive effect. It did, it, it did sustain Korea's growth a little bit in like uh, the late 70s and 80s, uh, the, the HCI program. And there's research showing this. And China wants to emulate that. So they thought they don't necessarily want the same industries. Instead, they want chips, for example. So semiconductors are the biggest, are sort of the centerpiece of the made in China 2025 idea. And they've been pushing very, very hard for domestic semiconductor production. You know, uh, so, so that's one that's one thing. But there's there's some other uh, you know things too. Electric vehicles, because what if someone cuts off our oil in a war? Chips, because what if America cuts off our chips during a war? <laughs> or our chip manufacturing uh, equipment, which is what export controls have done during Trump. And so it's all war stuff. It's all related to war. Um, and anyone who doesn't realize that should take a look at exactly what these technologies are. Drones, AI, these are all war things. And, but they're also things that if you boost productivity in these industries, it should produce some economic growth as well. Right. So, so I think that for Xi Jinping, who inherited this growth slowdown and is facing these, all these long-term factors of growth slowdowns, he, you know, in 2007, it was very easy to say that China's growth is, China's greatness is predicated on its economy, on growth. And Hu Jintao said, we're not going to take Taiwan. We'll, we'll put that off. Grow the economy. You know, Hu Jintao was, was an underrated guy. Uh, and so, so he based China's greatness on wealth. That was the Hu era. And then Xi Jinping, said, okay, well, growth is slowing initially through no fault of his own, later through fault of his own. But then he said, growth is slowing. We're going to have to base Chinese greatness on something else. We're going to base it on just becoming a great power and ass kickery and stuff. Yeah. Ass kickery is just a word. You know, it's a noun that, that we need in our language. So I'm just going to make it. And so we're going to base our greatness on ass kickery and, and potential ass kickery. It doesn't mean we have to actually start a war if we can just sort of overall people and 
you know, like Theodore Roosevelt with the great white fleet sending this, these battleships um, to overawe people, which they ended up laughing at because the battleships were obsolete by the time they arrived. But um, anyway, that aside, uh, so I think that that um, Made in China 2025 is somewhat about preserving growth because China does need to preserve growth. But a lot of it is just about war I, and potential I, I love- war and geopolitical power. I love that you're giving that overview, Noah, because, you know, I think so much of the arguments that we hear here in the West, when you say, oh, you know, maybe we should consider tariffs, we need to, you know, reshore a lot of that stuff. People just say, oh, you're such a China hawk, you know, what about, you know, uh, capitalism and and global global economy, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, well, no, like China has started those things five to 10 years ago. We need to catch up to them (laughs) on on a lot of those topics, right? Right. But we we have to do it in a smart way. And, and. The thing about Trump is that he was very, very good at sniffing the winds and figuring out what it's time, what it's sort of time to do, right? And it was time to do something about China. But that doesn't mean that what he did was the right thing. Like, so for example, it was time to reshore U.S. Manufa- high-tech manufacturing, yes. But paying Foxconn to pretend to build a country, uh, a factory in, you know, uh, Southwest Wisconsin was not a a smart strategy. That was not a thing we should do. Uh, you know, yelling at, at Carrier, the company Carrier, to like build plants in America was not effective. They ended up just reshoring, uh, offshoring different plants instead of that one. Um, and so that these were ineffective solutions to real problems. Trump was able to sniff the wind, but he wasn't able to get it done. Now, on vaccines, they handed it off to the military and private companies and et cetera, and they got it done. Uh, and Barda, which is a very effective bureaucracy. I don't know, maybe like the the, the smart CDC people went to Barda. I don't know. Um, so then, but then, so they did that. That Trump was dumb. Um, Biden is marginally less dumb than Trump. Uh, the Biden administration has lots of smart young people who are sort of trying to figure this stuff out, but they are very much focused on on trying to sort of combine this with whatever progressive causes they want to further. So there's ideological stuff going on in the Biden administration at the lower level, at sort of the level of like undersecretary of blah, blah, blah. Um, That is, you know, that they're not as focused on as Trump on like reshore manufacturing beat China. Trump didn't know what he was doing and didn't really succeed. The Biden administration knows what it's doing a little bit more, but, you know, has its priorities are, I would say, diffuse, more diffuse. Some people want to really rah-rah beat China, like Brad Setzer. He's just like, remedy global imbalances. That is the only thing I want to do. That is what we must do. And we will do that. And then other people are like, you know, like, yes, but what about what about investment for this marginalized community, you know, in Alabama or something? And so um, so you've got people working at cross purposes in this sort of diffuse administration, which I think has slightly weakened the Biden administration's China efforts because we haven't seen a, we've seen big plans released that look good. And in terms of actual implementation, we're seeing some good stuff, but it's, but it's kind of diffuse. And I think the Russia war has helped because it's helped focus people on the geostrategic piece of this. The idea that, yes, we must, we must protect the marginalized community in somewhere in rural Alabama. Fine. But we um, also, We've got really big fish here. Um, author- totalitarian empires are on the march. <laughs> you know, so I think that's that's refocused people's uh, thinking a little bit. Maybe not enough yet, but a little bit. 
And I think you saw this, the parallel to that is the FDR administration. So can I talk a little bit about economic history and, and this history of the New Deal here? Absolutely. Right. All right. So, so FDR gets into power and, and the economy is totally in the shitter and the global economy is in the shitter too. And FDR says, okay, we're going to fix this, guys. We're going to bail out the banks. And that worked. We're going to get off the gold standard. And that worked. We're going to do some public works. And that worked. We're going to pay all the farmers to shoot their pigs, you know, and then like burn their crops and then allow companies to monopolize, uh, you know, so, so that they can make better profits. And that didn't work. And so the new deal kind of grinds to a halt. And then FDR is like, okay, well that, okay, that didn't work. So we're going to do progressive stuff. We're going to do social security and social insurance and blah, blah, unemployment insurance that helped, but it didn't get the country out of low growth. And so at the same time, the new deal was extremely interested in helping the marginalized community in Alabama. Uh, at that point, it was probably a poor white community instead of a black community that they wanted to help, but they were very interested in sort of redistributing growth around the country because we just come out of the Gilded Age, incredible age of inequality. And they were like, we need to redistribute. And so they, they similarly to the Biden administration, they were working at a lot of small social purposes. Uh, and then suddenly in the late 1930s, suddenly it starts to become apparent that Hitler you know, uh, Japan and or Stalin are going to make a bid to overturn the world order and conquer the world. And the FDR administration realizes this at a time when the American people don't realize or don't care and say, we're over here, they're over there, who cares? Um, and but the FDR administration is like, okay, okay, we care. We, we know this is important, guys. Like, it's not going to end with just Germany conquering France or Japan conquering China or one of these things. Like, at some point, this is going to show up on our doorstep. So we got to do something about that. But it, you, they couldn't really convince the population. So instead, they started quietly preparing and quietly reorienting their economic policy toward war production in, I would say, 1936. And when you look at when heavy bombers started to be designed in America, it's 1936. The bombers that eventually won the war and dropped all these incendiary devices on all these cities and wrecked these cities in 1945, we didn't wake up in 1940. December 1941, say, oh my God, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. Maybe we need some heavy bombers, right? Roosevelt is like, totalitarian powers are on the march. It is time to build some heavy bombers in case. And of course, we did need them a few years later, um, but he built them just in case. And they started doing, now, of course, when the war actually began, they, they really scrambled to put together the war production boards and all this coordinated central planning stuff. But in terms of some of the technologies they needed, defense procurement and things like that, and in terms of some of the legal machinery, they, they began early. And I think you see that in the Biden administration right now. You see the Ukraine attack as sort of similar to, I would say, the Spanish Civil War in terms of how much um, reca recalibration uh, it, is, it is prompted. You know, the, the Westerners saw that Spanish Civil War. They're like, OK, we're not going to get involved in the Spanish Civil War. And so the fascist one says, <laughs> so we're not going to get involved. But we sort of realize at this point, like they saw Hitler giving, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Spanish nationalists planes and pilots that just firebomb these cities. You know, that big painting by Picasso that you see with like the, the cow, like that was that was that's about bombing. Like that's about the future of warfare. And that's and they saw that and they were like, OK, well, OK, maybe we need some of that, but better. And so. Um, so they started building a lot of stuff and reorienting their economic policy toward being able to tell the country what to build. And I think the Biden administration now, because of Ukraine, is doing some of that now. It needs to be doing more of that. Um, I'm not saying we're going to have a World War III, 
I hope we don't. I'm not saying we're going to reorient our economy toward like war planning. I hope we don't have to, because that's not efficient. You know, it's like telling everybody, okay, tank time. That's not, you know, it's time to make some drones, guys. Like that's not efficient economically. It's not things that lead to greater consumption happiness. Um, it is it is necessary stuff sometimes, but I don't want to have to do it. We might have to do it. And so we need to start preparing those institutions um, and and deshoring from China, getting getting supply chains to allied to the United States if possible, but more likely to allied countries, ally shore or friend shoring, as Janet Yellen has called it, that is going to be more important. Uh, that is going to be extremely important. Um, and so I think that hopefully that's the Ukraine war is focusing a lot of minds within the sort of sometimes distracted by the administration. I, I love the historical overview, Noah. And then to talk about what's happening in North eastward of Europe, um, if China's economy is really taking a downturn, what does that mean for the overall ambitions of the Belt and Road, and of the Belt and Road Initiative? Uh, and how successful would you say that the Belt and Road Initiative has been to date? I would say the Belt and Road Initiative has not been successful. In general, the, so the idea of Belt and Road was, was threefold. It was, okay, we're going to give, we're going to make countries be friends with us by funding their economic development. We're going to give a lot of pork to Chinese companies to sort of paper over the fact that growth is really slowing uh, in China. Uh, you know, we're going to throw money at these like Chinese construction companies and whatnot. And then, um, and we're going to build military ports, ports and bases elsewhere. And essentially none of that worked out. Well, the, the pork worked out fine. That's just not very economically efficient. The, so the pork worked out fine, but the, but the other two prongs of the strategy didn't really work. Countries realized that the, the projects being built were not being built with an eye toward uh, returns, toward, toward making a good economic return. Um, because they were being built by Chinese companies, these Chinese companies didn't actually know how to, um, they didn't actually know how to make a return. Because these were these construction companies have been doing incredibly inefficient stuff in China because government banks would loan the money at ridiculously low rates and not even think about nobody thought about actually discerning which projects make sense and earning a good return. Suddenly they get to Pakistan or Malaysia or wherever and they're like, okay, well, now build something. And like, okay, we build something and it didn't earn a return. And the Chinese companies like, okay, it didn't earn a return, but we got paid. So that's all good. You know, let's go party. But the people in Malaysia and Pakistan, whatever, like that didn't earn a return guys. And because they wanted to give so much pork to the Chinese companies, they insisted on financing some of this with debt taken out by the host countries and the host countries like, okay, so that didn't earn an economic return occasionally. And occasionally this was because Chinese companies were actually bad at dealing with local conditions. So in, in Balochistan, Pakistan, they were building like, you know, a pipeline and local separatists just blew it up. They blew up the pipeline. Like that doesn't happen in China. <laughs> they were like, uh, okay, let's rebuild. So they rebuild and they blew it up. <laughs> and so then they're like, okay, so that's not working. Um, and so then in, uh, in some, I forget exactly which country it was. I forget if it was Bangladesh or Malaysia or somewhere. There was one where they, uh, you know, local communities were like, okay, don't take our land to build this thing. And they staged a protest and stopped them. And China's like, okay, just kick them all off the land like we do. And they were like, uh, no, no, we can't do that here. We can't just kick the peasants off their land in millions to build a road or a train or a pipeline or a dam or something. Like, we can't do that here. Um, 
China can do that. You know, a democratic country can't. A country with different norms can't. Right. Even in China, it made a lot of people mad that nobody revolted because everyone remembered the Cultural Revolution. They're like, okay, maybe we better not do that again. But then in in you know some country, other countries, people will revolt. And so, like, okay, let's not do that. Um, and so, so the Chinese companies didn't sort of understand that they couldn't operate in other countries the way they operate in China. They had very little experience operating overseas. And so, so these countries got saddled with the debt, and they're like, okay, uh, guys, we didn't we didn't ask to be saddled with debt for projects that didn't pan out. That that sucks. Um, and China was like, okay, well, we could, uh, you know, we could give you a bunch of money, or we could just sort of tell you to go fuck yourself. And what are we used to doing in China when things don't work out? We say, oh, <laughs> things didn't work out? <laughs> Too bad for you. <laughs> and so that's what they did. And countries got mad. And and basically, you start to see this general downturn in opinions toward China. You start to see countries like Malaysia that have been pretty pro-China start to drift toward the West, I think. So Belt and Road was a failure. They maybe got one, maybe two good bases, base located. They didn't even build the bases. They just built the infrastructure for the bases that they hoped to put there at some point, like Gwadar and Pakistan. Pakistan was always China's ally. Like there was no need to like cement the China-Pakistan alliance. China, Pakistan was already in the bag for China, you know, because it needs China to beat up India for it or threaten India. Um, and so, so it didn't really gain, China didn't really gain any allies and it even lost some potential allies. So, so Belt and Road was a failure. I think they'll try to make it work. They'll they'll try to to make it not completely fail, just so they can like save face, um, because you don't want to have something like that just completely pull back on it. Um, and it ultimately didn't cost them that much money. But uh, I would say that at this point it's a failure. And what you see China doing now is they're reorienting toward bases in the Pacific and they're courting Pacific islands. This is their new thing. They say, okay, that was too too complicated of a strategy. Okay, our new strategy for overseas basing for military is just to pay tiny countries to let us put base there. And so they made a deal with the Solomon Islands, you know, to to put a potential base there. I think they've said, well, it won't be a military base, but it, it will, it will. Um, and so, you know, that's a that's the Solomon Islands are a strategic place. The capital of the Solomon Islands is on an island called Guadalcanal. You may have heard of it. The bloodiest not the bloodiest, but the but the certainly the longest running and most bitterly fought campaign of the Pacific was a sort of a a year long battle over that island between the United States and Japan because it was a very very strategically located island. And so now that's what China's trying to do now. I'm not a military guy, so I'm not going to you know go get over my skis too much here. But but that's China's deal now that they're going around. And then of course Australia is freaking out. They're like, oh my god, you know you're going to make alliances with all these islands. No. And so Australia is getting like, you know, this is a red line, said Scott Morrison, the um, Prime Minister of Australia. Anyway, so, yeah, so that's what's going on there. Economically, Belt and Road was pretty much a failure. Geopolitically, it was pretty much a failure. And now China, geopolitically, China's turning to alternatives. Talk to us a little bit about China and real estate and the potential real estate crisis. Um, obviously, you know, uh, Evergrande has been in the news, uh, quite a bit, um, with their debt default, like did the government bail them out? What does that look like? Is that an isolated event? What's the state of things? What's the ripple effect? Like what does real estate look like over there? Okay. So 
there's a writer that you want to follow to keep up to date with this. It's Shuli Wren of Bloomberg. She's just been like, you know, a one woman juggernaut in covering this, this stuff. So just follow Shuli Wren to figure out. So anything you hear me say will be like month out of date Shuli Wren stuff, I guess, because she writes a lot. So the, the background here is that China, every time there was any macroeconomic shock, the Great Recession, the stock market crash and capital outflow of 2015, et cetera, what China would do is tell banks to build more stuff, tell banks to lend money to the construction industry, to real estate developers, to local governments who are basing all their revenue on real estate, all these real estate related things and pump back up the economy. And so they kept doing this. And that meant that China never had a recession, um, or at least not officially. But they it was amazing macroeconomic stabilization policy. They really, they're like, they conquered the business cycle. The problem is there was a massive price to pay for this, which is long slowing productivity growth because they diverted they they're more and more of their resources toward building houses and other buildings and sometimes infrastructure, but houses that they didn't really need. You know, you see these forests of apartment towers. Nowadays, you see forests of empty apartment towers slated for demolition because no one lived there. And so that's where all the forests of apartment towers came from. Stimulus, fiscal stimulus, uh, in this case, financial stimulus, um, because they told banks to basically lend. And so that was China's amazing stabilization policy that came at a long-term cost. That couldn't go on forever. Eventually, you know, nobody buys your houses and you can't earn a return anymore. And so that, that point had sort of been reached with the fact that everyone in China who wanted like a decent apartment to live in, you know, essentially had it unless they were too poor to afford it. You know, you had massive inequality in China. So you had a bunch of empty, nice apartments that people were using as investment properties uh, you know, mortgaging their, like, you know, in China, you'd have the one child policy. So you'd have, uh, you know, one parent <clears throat> with just four, with four grandparents. So the grandparents savings and the parents savings, everyone would be channeled eight. If you had a couple, say you'd have eight grandparents and, and four parents all channeling all their life savings into buying this one apartment, one apartment for two couples. And often Sometimes they would buy apartments that nobody lived in thinking these will appreciate as an investment vehicle because China's stock markets are not very developed. And so where else do you save your money? You buy an extra apartment. No one's living in it. Who's going to live in it? There's not enough sets of eight grandparents and four parents and two kids to mortgage all their life savings to pay even higher prices tomorrow. It's a Ponzi, right? It's, it's going to fall apart. And so um, that happened. Like they reached the end point of demand. and you know, when they had based a way too much of their economy by some, by some estimates, 30% of their economy was real estate or closely connected to real estate, 30% compared oh to like God. half that in America or something. 30% is huge. And so suddenly 30% of the economy grinds to a halt. Um, that's, that's the end of, of rapid growth. Like we, when we think of rapid growth, we think of trying to making stuff and selling it overseas. Well, to be honest, a lot of the stuff they made was sold domestically, you know, because uh, they're not that export intensive of a country. Um, but then a lot of the stuff was, you know, a, a lot of the stuff China was making was just buildings and roads, buildings and roads and buildings and roads and buildings and roads and malls, you know, and, and what's, by the way, one interesting thing about China is everyone, when they imagine when they haven't been to China recently or, or at all, and, uh, and they sort of imagine what China looks like, they're imagining Hong Kong, they're imagining Tokyo, they're imagining Seoul or Taipei or one of these places, they're not imagining um, 
you know, Chicago, which is a lot more what Chinese cities look like. They look a lot more like Chicago. You've got like a, some forest of, of really impressive towers at the center. And then you've got massive, massive highways to take people out to these, you know, apartment blocks. China has sprawl. China really sprawls. It is not Hong Kong. It is not, um, certainly not Japan. Um, <laughs> it doesn't have any of this uh, walkability built into it. You can't really walk Chinese cities except for a few small districts. You can go to them all and walk around in them all, but then you're driving somewhere. You're in a car on a highway. People don't get that about China, but they probably should. And this is partly, you know, partly because China's bigger, but more of it's more just about how China wanted to develop. They wanted to stimulate the car industry by making highways so that they could make a lot of cars. And so anyway, that was that was a big part of it. So now we've got all this. Uh, so so Evergrande was sort of the first big company to fail because they were the company making it, it's always the company that makes the most ridiculous bets as as its core business strategy, right? Um, the company that's like, okay, we're we're gonna be more bullish than anybody else because that company is in some sense, um, they're just they're they're betting it all, right? They're like, okay, if stuff fails, we're all gonna fail. Let's, you know, let's just fail harder. <laughs> you know, let's let's make more money during the good times so that, you know, and then hopefully squirrel it away so that if there is a failure, we end up with more money squirreled away than anybody else. And that's their strategy. And that's always the company that fails first. And that was Evergrande. To talk a little bit more about the stock market, you know, you sort of alluded to a lot of the central planning mistakes that is, you know, part of the nature of a socialist government. Do you think that Xi Jinping, uh, Xi Jinping has precipitated a stock market crisis uh, by its interest in sort of picking winners and leaders uh, in its actions towards uh, tech companies like Alibaba, JD, and a couple of others over the last couple of years? Well, of course. So what's interesting, he's not really picking winners. He's picking losers. What's interesting is that normal industrial policy says we want this industry and we want that industry and we want that industry. You know, so we're going to pour resources into those things. And that's the pull factor that pulls smart people and whatever into that industry. Xi Jinping did something different. Yes, he's doing the Made in China 2025 and the big semiconductor push. So he is doing the, the you know, sort of pull factor, the standard industrial policy. But he also decided to do something else, which is push factors. He, he said, okay, if I crush, if I crush IT, you know, if I crush consumer internet stuff, then, no, not IT because he wants AI right? To power the war drones, whatever. But if I crush, you know, consumer internet, then the smart people will go into the things I want them to go to. So he sort of sees the economy like a tube of toothpaste where you can stomp on one end and all the toothpaste comes out the other end. Um, and the other end being toward the stuff he wants, semiconductors and whatnot. And it's hard to talk about, you know, a lot of the crises that are happening there without talking about the, the COVID stuff. So I feel like we should at least touch on it. Uh, there's been a ton of COVID restrictions in the countries and lockdowns, especially in Shanghai and Beijing. It seems that the Chinese government has decided to really double down on the policy, which they now call uh, dynamic zero COVID, right? Uh, what's the state of the, uh, the battle against COVID in the major cities? And what to, to what extent do you think it is responsible for the slowdown in the economy? Oh, well, I mean, in the, in the short term, that's a lot. That, that's a very big factor in the slowdown. Um, it's really hitting China's economy hard now, and it will probably for a couple of years. Um, <clears throat> it's not clear when it's going to end because China refused to use Western mRNA vaccines. Elderly Chinese people don't want to get vaxxed. So there's a lot of anti-vaxxerism in China. 
uh, and we don't people don't realize that. Um, so as a result, people, China is very vulnerable to COVID outbreaks, and COVID isn't going away. You know, it's an endemic disease. It's it's the new flu, right? Flu never went away when this, the Spanish flu pandemic ended. It just kept coming back, and you know, killing people every year. Um, COVID's going to do the same. Uh, we may at some point get a vaccine that actually kills off COVID, but that's not, you know, people are working on that, but it's not there yet. So um, China really, you know, they can, they can beat down Omicron with these harsh lockdowns, but then what if it just comes back in a week, then you beat it down again, you do that same lockdown again. So this, this uncertainty about the future, about when this lockdown might start again, and this failure to see, they haven't articulated what's the light at the end of the tunnel. At what point do we stop doing lockdowns? When does this stop? They haven't made that apparent. And one reason they haven't made that apparent is because Xi Jinping <clears throat> is, is now up for his third term, i.e. his dictator for life uh, approval. And he can't show any, any devi- he feels that he can't show any deviation, any weakness. Stay the course. So, on that point, uh, you, you know, like I think the the main argument that I've heard about the the continuation of the lockdowns is that Xi Jinping, to to your point, really cannot afford to take the hit, uh, the the reputational hit of saying, "Hey, we actually have a problem with with COVID." Uh, after you know celebrating all the quote unquote success that China has had with COVID over the last two years, um, could it be more than just you know a save face? Uh, that's happening now. I mean, I'm sure you've seen a lot of the restrictions that China has imposed on uh, party officials uh, against having assets overseas. Uh, I'm sure, like, like there's also mm. the all the stocking up of the of the food that they've been that they've been doing over the last year. Like, could this be maybe you know just a facade for a lot of other things that are happening in the in the background? So that's a very interesting question. And here we get beyond the limits of what I know. And this is a thing that I've wondered about a lot, but I have no information yet about. Just because I I am not a China expert, I rely on about like seven or eight China experts that I trust, and they don't know. No one knows what's going on. It's possible that the government is opportunistically using the sort of eternal lockdowns to create a totalitarian state, eliminate all dissent, you know, like basically basically bring the country back to mao level totalitarianism but hopefully with a stronger economy than than mao but then reestablish you know sort of total control over everything going down to the very block level back to maybe i you know i hate to say his name but almost stalin levels of totalitarianism there is the fear among some people that china is using these perma lockdowns as an excuse to implement that And that now, you know, full big brother with AI cameras watching you at every moment, you know, uh, uh, making sure you live your life in exactly the right way every all day, every day, um, that maybe that's that's what's happening. And I have no proof that that's true. And it sounds alarmist to say that I've seen people say that because so I should clarify that I don't have any information that that's what's actually going on. Other, you know, like totally. And, and, and no one I know has any information whether that's what's going on. That will become apparent in five years. We'll know whether that happened. Right. But to be fair, they, they have been doing a lot of those things already in Xinjiang. 
uh, right? Uh, and, and there's a whole situation with the Uyghurs ha- happening over there. I- I'm curious, by the way, this is something that we, we haven't really brought up in, the, in this conversation. But when we talk about China's influence globally, uh, to what extent that what's happening in Xinjiang will actually, uh, you know, have a reputational impact or create uh, issues for them uh, at, at a global level and economic level? I mean, obviously, China's reputation among rich countries has severely suffered. Um, Europe was very, you know, sort of pro-China engagement before, and they've backtracked very quickly. That started happening before, that started happening in the 2010s. Europe started backing away, and and stuff, human rights stuff, I'm kind of cynical whether, like, you know, France actually cares about human rights. I guess the Scandinavians do. I'm not sure France does, but it certainly was as Uyghurs... The Uyghur oppression has been used as an excuse by Europe. Then uh, in in terms of China's neighbors, it has already pissed them off for completely different reasons, basically just because of aggression. You know, India is like, oh, you just killed a bunch of our guys and built a bunch of infrastructure on our border, which you claim some of our territory. So India is, you know, the, the Modi administration is not happy with China. Malaysian, Indonesia and Vietnam have all sort of become a lot warier toward China. The Philippines is really anti-China, which is why China always tries to like bribe the Philippine president into into supporting it because the people of the Philippines really don't like China. And so, and of course, you know, Japan and Korea are increasingly scared of uh, of of China's power. So, you know, Russia was really the only neighbor that China wasn't sort of scaring. So, among rich countries and China's neighbors, it has been losing support. Among distant countries, Middle Eastern countries don't care. They're like, okay, sure, we like China. Where's that? Um, you know, do they do they buy oil? Are they not the United States? <laughs> yeah, fine. And you know, in, in African countries, they're just like, well, we like we like anybody, man. Like, you know, we just we just want some economic growth. We're we, you know, we like you. Yes, America, yes, China. And so, and then um, you know, so so in distant regions, China has, you know, continues to be popular among some of these places because. Uh, although in Africa, a few countries are getting mad because of debt from the Belt and Road, but I think a lot of countries still are very pro-China because they're sort of pro-anybody. Not really sure about Latin America. But um, but I think that among the, the rich countries that could actually effectively oppose China and among China's neighbors, rich and non-rich alike, that could actually effectively oppose China, its opinion is really, its, its image has suffered dramatically, deteriorated dramatically. And that's going to come back to bite them. Right. Right. And what do you make? I mentioned this a few minutes ago, but what, what do you make of the restrictions that Xi Jinping posed last month on all, all the party officials that against uh, owning foreign assets? Uh, and how does that how does that relate to the beating drums of war that you alluded to? Oh, because that that's a response to the sanctions. So when the United States financially sanctioned people, one of the ideas was to put pressure on the Russian government through oligarchs to say, look, we got your yacht. We got your bank account. We got all your stuff. And you better pressure Putin to give up this war or you're you're not going to enjoy this rich overseas lifestyle. So Xi Jinping was like, and that that didn't work because it turned out that Putin didn't need the oligarchs. But she may need the oligarchs or not. But but whether he does or not, uh, you know, it's good to not be vulnerable to those that sort of sanction attack. And so Xi Jinping is preparing for that sort of sanction attack by uh, you know, restricting party officials from being vulnerable to that. And that's all it is. Um, is this preparation for war? I don't know. It's it's hardening the country against an attack, financial right. attack. 
Right. So Noah, I mean, this has been a fantastic discussion. Um, given everything we've discussed, how do you evaluate, evaluate uh, Xi Jinping's success today? And you know, how right do you think that people are to be very warned about chi- worried about China uh, these days? Um, I I'd say um, the China will conquer the world because it's inevitable greatness. Blah blah blah. You know, China is this unstoppable juggernaut that always grows at a high rate of growth and whose wise government always knows how to plan everything, blah, blah, blah. That narrative is dead. Like, don't buy that. Don't be worried about, like, China becoming the unstoppable, you know, like, growth. That's um, That has happened precisely once. There's been one country where people said, okay, this, is, this country is the future. This country is inevitably be- going to become the most powerful country in the world and sort of dominate everything in the world. That was us, America. And people sort of saw that coming a long way off, but, and they, and they were right. Um, they also, some people thought this for Russia and they were wrong. Some people thought this for Japan and they were wrong. Some people thought this for Germany and they were wrong. Now, a lot of people think this for China and they are probably wrong. China's big. It's a lot bigger than America. It's really big, but it is not hy- as hyper-competent as people think. Xi Jinping is especially incompetent. I think that the CCP was moving toward becoming a much more competent sort of standard bureaucracy under Hu Jintao. Xi Jinping has reduced that and taken it back toward being more of like a party party, you know, more of a mafia. Parties like start out as mafias and end as bureaucracies. I just made up that line. And I think that this she is taking the CCP back toward being a mafia, only now it's a mafia organized under his autocratic rule, uh, which is what Mao really did and tried to do for a while. And so I think that, or, or Stalin did that, um, you know, Stalin was famously the master of personnel, right? Like everyone was was friends of Stalin in that whole government um, or friends of friends of Stalin. It was a chain. right? And so um, and then he occasionally had all his best friends shot. So <laughs> Xi Jinping is not that bad. Like Stalin was fucking nuts. Um, but then Xi Jinping is not nuts. He's just sort of this boomer. You know, he's sort of like he's Trump with too much power, really. Um, he's like. He's smarter than Trump, but that's not difficult. Like, um, he's, you know, anyway, so, so, uh, that narrative of you should be scared of this inevitable juggernaut needs to go out the window. That's, that's done. That was never true. But now it's, it's been apparent for years that that's not true. So, but the question I have for you then is, you know, to some degree, um, I, I, like, do you agree with the narrative that the U S has been asleep, uh, towards uh, China's increasing influence uh, over the last 20 years and that we needed to wake up to that. And maybe that created the narrative that China is an unstoppable juggernaut. But there is, you know, sort of a, a compromise between those two ideas that, 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 we need, that, that we need to figure out. Yes, I completely agree with what you just said. Um, we were asleep to, so, so the, there was a second part of my, of my rant there, which is that China doesn't have to be hyper-competent America had to be hyper-competent in order to dominate the world. Germany and Japan or in Russia would have had to have been more competent than it was possible to even be to dominate the world. China is so big that they can afford to be mildly incompetent and still dominate the world. What you should be worried about is international conflict. What you should be worried about is China being not competent enough to become rich and happy and, you know, whatever. Now we all just play video games, but instead becoming medium rich you know, becoming one third of America's GDP, which means that it's total per capita, which means it's total GDP would be much higher. 
than ours, biggest economy in the world, a manufacturing block unto itself that can effectively wage war, economic war, uh, diplomatic, geopolitical war, or actual war against the rest of the world effectively. Um, you know, Germany in the world wars tried to become this super insular economy that could make everything that it needed. And it went to these incredible lengths to do that. And it still didn't quite work. Um, China could do that maybe a little more, you know, we could interdict its oil supplies, but other than that, not much coal, maybe. So that's what people should be worried about. People should be worried that China is just so damn big that it represents a greater challenge to the global order than, you know, um, Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, or the Soviet Union ever did. Um, they're not as nuts as the Soviet Union, or even as nuts as they were during that time. But they're, so they're not. But but they they look a little bit more like pre World War One Germany, except less competent. You know, sort of a much bigger but less competent version of, uh, you know, like uh, Wilhelmine Germany, right? right. It's funny. Um, yeah, a That's point a that I, re I, I remember from Rosh Doshi's book that, that you mentioned is uh, they're the first country in, I think, 200 years that reached uh, more than 60% of America's GDP, right? And that, 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 was, that was just an interesting stat that, I, that, that, that I, I, had, I had not heard before. Right. The truth is that China really has a higher GDP than the United States, total GDP. Um, and the reason this is obscure is because of exchange rates. Because if capital were allowed freely to flow, there were well, maybe not now. Actually, maybe now, if capital were allowed freely to flow, it would flow out of China and the yuan would depreciate. But up until now, it was the case that if they had allowed capital to flow, a lot of capital would have piled into China to try to take advantage of growth and get a piece of the Chinese market. And that that would have raised the yuan and that would have raised the nominal GDP closer to PPP, not all the way to PPP, but enough to overtake America. And that's, in fact, what happened with Japan. So when, when you know, a lot of foreign capital started moving into Japan, the yen really went up um, and Japan's nominal GDP um, just skyrocketed in like the 80s, um, even though its real GDP only grew at a moderate rate. But its nominal GDP went up because the yen got really strong. And um, international agreements were also part of that, the Plaza Accord. And so um, so China's economy is bigger than that. They, they manufacture more value added than us. They export more than us. They, you know... Their economy would be bigger than us with the right combination of capital outflows. They are bigger than us. What they're not bigger than is us plus our allies. When you take America and you add Japan and then you add Europe. So suppose Europe really, you know, continues to get more anti-China and then and then is on our side in sort of a global conflict because China's buddies with Russia, uh, which I think would really get Europe uh, scared and mad. Then then we the preponderance comes back to us. So. Some someone did this calculation of basically the U.S. and its rich allies, which they called the West, even though you know Japan and South Korea and Taiwan are in there, um, and then versus versus China and its allies, you know China and Russia, maybe like Pakistan, North Korea. These countries don't have much of an economy. Basically, it's just China. Then we overmatch China altogether. But that's that's a lot different than the situation in like the World Wars or the Cold War, where we alone outmatched. You know, America was considerably bigger economically than, you know, it was bigger than like the Soviet Union, Japan, and Germany all combined. Like even during the war, you know, we were providing all, like a lot of the Soviets production. We saved their butts by giving them stuff, much like we are now doing to Ukraine. We supported the Soviet Union against Nazi Germany the same way we're supporting Ukraine against Russia now. And we really saved their butts in World War II with that production. Also Britain. 
the answer is this is this is scarier um, in terms of yeah, like China doesn't have to be very competent, doesn't have to be a very efficient economy, or or doesn't have to be even the most like well organized society. It doesn't have to be this hyper competent thing to to take over the world. All they have to do is be competent enough where their size makes a difference. Because uh, as Stalin once said, a quantity has a quality all its own. Right. Right. Noah, I mean, this has been a, a really fantastic, fantastic and deep discussion on China. I know you've gone so deep on the topic over the last year. I thought that we could end maybe with a few books or reading recommendations for folks that would like to go deeper. Uh, what are the best resources uh, and favorite picks that, that, that you've had over the last year? All right. Well, of course, Rush Doshi, if you want to understand the, the strategic stuff, uh, as you said, uh, that book is called The Long Game. The Party by uh, Rich McGregor is an extremely detailed, high quality look into how the CCP, the, the party itself operates as a mafia in, in China, how it controls the personnel and the, the ideology and the blah, blah. Um, it basically just took the system from the Soviets and refined it. That is really, it doesn't have Xi Jinping in it, but it, you know, but you can see the machinery that Xi Jinping inherited and took over, right? You can see that. If you want to get up to date on sort of the the economy, there's lots of good books about the the Hu Jintao period, and and which shades into sort of like the early Xi. Those tell you about these economic changes we've been talking about. If you want backgrounders, um, you can read George Magnus's Red Flags. You can read uh, Arthur Grober's like uh, China's Economy. Um, you can read um, there's some other ones. Elizabeth Economy uh, has a book. Uh, China's Gilded Age is a book I am about to read, um, but then I haven't read yet, but everyone says great things about it. Uh, there's a book called uh, Middle Class Shanghai that I need to read. It's on my list. Um, so so I would. there's a lot of books you can read about where China's recently been. There's not a lot of good books written since 2020. The events are changing on the ground so fast that... Um, oh, uh, Factory Girls, by the way, is a great book. If you want to read about China under sort of Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. It's not. It's just about the the experience of these women who went from farms to the big city to work, and it's just incredibly detailed stuff. And that's when you realize the the amazing and scary thing about China. Do you want to hear the amazing and scary revelation about China? Please tell us. It's very much like America. Chinese culture and American culture are far more similar than anyone realizes. Oh, well, a few people realize this, but. But people think, oh, such an alien culture. Nope. China is so similar to America that during its industrial development, you see almost exact parallels of all the same people. Like she's going to this sort of, she, she meets this huckster who doesn't know anything about business, who just started talking about like, you know, sort of like, just started writing these like self-help books about how to get ahead and just boost himself to popularity. That's Dale Carnegie. Like that's, that's exactly Dale Carnegie. You see these same People pop up and you see the same cultural institutions pop up and the, the sort of farm to factory women that all popped up in America, like all these same things we saw. Um, and so Factory Girls really shows you how much China's Gilded Age is like our Gilded Age was. And, um, and the more you learn about Chinese culture, the more you learn about how similar it is to American culture. It, Not European, it, but American. It, your point, like, on a economic level or on a business culture level, I mean, I, I'm sure you would agree that Everything. in terms. W- what about the argument that in terms of individualism or 
care for the rule of law and due process and all these things that, you know, those are, you know, exclusively part of the American culture that is even hard to find in Latin America or Europe. Um, no. How, how do, <laughs> tell, um, tell me more. Uh, so, so Americans, I think, don't intrinsically care about the rule of law any more than anyone, people anywhere else. Um, rule of law is something that elites care about and that works functionally, but that people don't necessarily at the, at the local level, people just want things to sort of go their way. Um, they care less about process, like elites care about process. Um, I don't want to go too far over my skis there with the political science and blah, 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 uh, institutionalism, blah, you know, I've read a bunch of papers about like the economics of institutions, but there's a political science, even vaster political science literature that I've never even touched. So I don't want to get too far over my skis there. In terms of culture, I think entrepreneurialism is huge in China and in America. And sometimes it's entrepreneurialism of a, I want to build the future sort of Elon Musk type thing. Or sometimes it's, it's you know, entrepreneurialism of the, um, of like the, I want to, I want to scam some people for a quick buck, uh, you know, sort of Enron kind of thing. And those but but China's extremely capitalist, uh, you know, at its bones. And Xi Jinping is trying to restrain that with with neo-totalitarianism. But he's he's trying to ride herd on a um, on a on a society that's deeply capitalist at its bones and uh, and where people try to get ahead. Um, like in America, you have a lot of what I would call amoral familism. Do you know that that expression originally applied to Sicily? Uh, by sociologists. Um, it basically just means like me and my family, we're getting rich, screw you, my family. And so like, um, you know, originally this was applied to just like, I don't know, peasants in Sicily, but like it describes America <laughs> quite a bit. Um, you know, this, uh, this sort of like, I'm lost in this big world of like competitive cutthroat capitalism. I'm just going to get mine. That's really a big deal in China. There's a lot of that. Um, especially because the one-child policy means so, so. The one-child policy means that a lot of kids are raised with these dreams of greatness. They're like, you know, I'm going to be great because when you combine like the whole family goading on one kid with rapid growth, right? Then um, you get this sort of like great expectations effect where everyone's like, I am going to be an emperor. I'm going to I'm going to have my own business empire and I'm going to be great. And like most people aren't like, and so that's true in America. Uh, and it's, it's true in China that you, and it's not true in Japan. I lived in Japan for years. I uh, just went back last week. Um, and it's not true in Japan. People in Japan do not grow up with big, unrealistic dreams. People in America do, and people in China do. And so, um, that's a important cultural similarity, that sort of ambition and high expectations and, uh, and family orientation that I think is similar between America and China. Right. Um, it's it's interesting and corner cutting, some, you know, we're countries cut corners. Something that you're saying that it just it, re it relates a lot because I, I grew up in Brazil and something that I see here in America that I've never seen in any country in Latin is this notion of nation building and this idea of, hey, you know, our country should be the best, but not necessarily in a hyper nationalistic way. It's just something that is just not ingrained in the culture at all in Brazil. <laughs> like, right. no, no, nobody grows up saying, hey, you know, like, we're going to make Brazil the best place in the world. Like, that's just like a conversation that nobody has. Right. Because you guys never really fought anybody except for Paraguay. Exactly. Exactly. And I like no, Paraguay's no. <laughs> ass pretty bad. Other than that, Brazil has been chilling in terms of geopolitics. Exactly. 
Um, so is the point then that complacency just doesn't breed the, 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 the best people? I mean, like, is, that, is that sort of what you're trying to say there? There is the idea that international competition and even conflict is what drives institutional improvements and economic development. That is a dark vision of the world. I am not ready to endorse that, but maybe one reason is because I just, I really don't want that to be true. But if you look at America's history, you see when there are three times in America's history, well, maybe four, that we've built a lot of stuff and that we've improved our institutions and that we've really tried hard to build infrastructure and improve the quality of the bureaucracy and improve education and all these things, right? Um, The Civil War, uh, to beat the Confederacy, World War II, and the Cold War. Those were the three times when we could act. Every other time, we're primarily concerned with sort of fighting over the spoils of stuff, squabbling amongst ourselves over the distribution of resources. Awesome. That's a pessimistic way to look at the world. But yeah, so, so maybe, maybe if Brazil had like some sort of rivalry with, I don't know who else is even around, Argentina? Argentina, like yeah. <laughs> Argentina's tiny. Argentina will always be defeated by Argentinian macroeconomics. Like Argentinian macroeconomics just beats Argentina every week. It's just like um mexico or somebody i don't know or united states like if, if you guys had a rival somebody maybe that would do something i don't know you can't just make that up though and like of course international conflict is horribly destructive we don't want it right like the cold war was so we sort of lucked out we didn't destroy the world with nuclear weapons but we came close a couple times and that was that was not worth it the economic development was not worth the you know, 20% risk of nuclear holocaust that we incurred. And so, so maybe Brazil's got it right, you know, just like, <laughs> yeah, you're a little poor, but hang out on the beach and, you know, you don't have to fight a nuclear war. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, well, we'll see about that. I mean, there's a reason why everybody like myself ends up come, coming to the United States at some point if they want to build something. <laughs> what, what do people say? Brazil is the country of the future and always will be or something yes, like that? Yes, that that was always a joke growing up, you know, because every 10 years you have this economic cycle that, you know, Brazil comes up saying, hey, like it's going to be the greatest country in the world. I mean, you, I'm sure you remember the BRICS 10 years ago. Um, right. Brazil was a part of that. And then, of course, you have a terrible recession. You know, the, the country goes down and that's just a cycle that repeats itself, you know, every 10 years, very similar to, to Argent, uh, Argentina that, that you alluded to. Um, and, you know, part of that is right. not, not, not a building culture, not a culture that actually, you know, uh, favors business, that see capitalism as a good thing. Uh, there's not any social mobility, right? You either like you're born on, on a rich family or just shit out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, right. a lot of these things. Right. And so, yeah. And it's hard to do because because Latin America does not have a large enough, dense enough population or is not close enough to other, you know, sort of economic centers to really become a cluster of manufacturing. You know, if you're going to manufacture, if you're going to move out of China, where are you going to move? You're going to move to Bangladesh, Indonesia, someplace nearby to China. So at least you you have your manufacturing supply chain still sort of in Asia. Well, that's not Latin America. And, um, you know, maybe Mexico because it's close to America, but that's sort of the only one that said, you know, uh, there's a couple, there's a couple Latin American countries that are doing really well right, right now economically. Um, uh, Chile has done well. Colombia doing pretty well in the Caribbean. The Dominican Republic is doing great. Um, and so that's, so there's, you know, there's, there's glimmers there. There's some countries. I don't think Brazil's not going to be the first, but it's rarely the big country. That's the first one, right? Like in Europe, it was Germany and Russia were the big countries, 
they developed after Britain, which was a small country, and the Netherlands, which is an even smaller country. In Asia, China and India were the big countries. They developed after Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, these small countries, right? And so in each region, you see uh, small countries get on that first. And so I'm hopeful that Colombia and Chile are sort of beginning the Latin American uh, cluster, you know, Latin American economic cluster. And then Brazil's big and event will Brazil, it'll eventually spread. That's my hope. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're very bullish on Latin America here at Village Global as well. Thank you so much for this. I know we went up we went up going a lot longer than we initially expected, but I feel like we covered so much ground on China and its economy all over the world and ended up with a tiny bit on Latin America in, in uh, US and China culture. So uh, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Like this has been fantastic. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. 